Welcome to Creative Conversations, where we at Creative Ventures muse about how the world is changing, opportunities in startups, and just our thoughts on how to run a method-driven, systematic venture fund in a rapidly changing world. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks. Just as a note to listeners, there's a few minutes in here where the audio did something kind of weird. Rest assured, though, that it's only for a few minutes and uh, most of the podcast is okay. So enjoy. All right. Today we are here with one of our portfolio companies, Picnic, and uh, they actually just were able to close a really significant Series A round. So congratulations, Clayton. Let's, uh, Let's, why don't we start out by getting a little bit of background on you and a little bit of background on Picnic as well. Uh, so what does Picnic do and, uh, where did you come from? So Picnic is a food automation startup. That means we are actually handling food. Our first product is a pizza production system where we're assembling pizzas automatically, um, any size, shape, toppings, uh, configurable, fully configurable, fully retrofitable in any commercial kitchen. For myself, I'm a startup veteran. I've been doing startups for about 15 years, uh, following a career in aerospace, mechanical engineer by training, and uh, really have always enjoyed small business and and especially startups. And I was drawn to Picnic because Picnic is a startup that's doing something significant. Uh, And, you know, pizza automation, pizza robot sounds kind of funny, uh, but it's it's really, and it has the opportunity to provide a great service to the food service industry, um, which is is going undergoing a tremendous transformation transformation at the moment. And, and I think I also remember that you also have a startup background before this as well. I think also in a food related area. I do. Yeah. My immediately prior to this, I was working at Unu, which is a precision agriculture startup, uh, working in indoor agriculture, both food and ornamental plants, doing a uh, automated uh, imaging of plants and then selling an information service based on that. So the development of that uh, automated camera imaging plants in giant greenhouses um, is really my primary automation background prior to this, but it was actually pretty pretty instrumental in informing me about the challenges of early stage automation. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm sure this is, <laughs> it sounds a little bit like a college student's dream just in terms of being able to work with cool robotics and pizza and everything every day. Uh, I guess just in terms of that, if you want to describe a little bit about the technology, just so I'm sure viewers can, listeners, I guess, can go to the website and see what it looks like. But if you want to describe a little bit about uh, how it looks, what sort of technology it uses, I think maybe we can paint a little bit of a picture for listeners. Sure. Uh, So our system... What we do, we're automating the actual assembly of a pizza. So we start with a stretch dough and we like to say we're dough agnostic. So it could be fresh, frozen, par-baked, uh, any shape, any size, any thickness. And you put the dough in our system. We have a computer vision camera that reads the size and shape of the dough and finds the boundary of where the edge of the dough is. And then we have a conveyor that moves that dough along to various stations. <clears throat> and, and we apply sauce cheese, fresh sliced pepperoni, and then what we call granular toppings, diced vegetables, sausage, mushrooms. Um, and then we produce a ready to cook pizza. 
if you hook our system up next to a conveyor oven, the pizza could flow right into the oven and you'll start from a, from a stretch dough and you'll end up with a cooked pizza. Um, our system can cook, can prepare hundreds of pizzas per hour. A uh, single operator can do 100 pizzas per hour. Uh, every pizza that goes through our system is fully customized size, shape, and toppings. And the, customized, the toppings can be customized light and heavy on any, on any ingredient or even omitting the, the uh, ingredient altogether. Um, and the brilliance of this modular approach is that we can configure our system to anyone's recipe and anyone's uh, production system. And eventually this same architecture can be used to build any other food that you assemble. Um, because each dish is unique and only gets the ingredients that it gets. Um, in the future, you can imagine a, a setting where uh, the first dish that goes down is a pizza, and then there's a salad, and then there's a sandwich, and they're all being made on the same production line because they're only getting the ingredients that they're designed to get. Um, all the orders are fully digitized. Um, it's a hands-free operation. And so because this is one of the most manual operations in a quick serve restaurant, we're digitizing a completely manual uh, operation. So there's a lot of new data that's coming out of our system that is uh, operationally useful. Ordering patterns, uh, inventory levels, ties into your POS, it ties into your purchasing system, uh, really gives the operator a lot more insights about efficient operations than they have with the current system uh, that they might be using today. I guess speaking of current systems then, uh, why is it that restaurants need automation? Because when people are thinking about these different sort of, uh, I think nowadays between uh, Zoom before and some of the other sort of flippy and some of these other robots that have made the news, people know a little bit more about food services automation and whatnot, but I don't think many people know why. So what's driving restaurants towards needing this kind of automation? It's, it's a little known fact or a little understood fact that um, the food service industry has had a chronic labor shortage for years. Uh, before the pandemic, the National Restaurant Association was reporting that there were 800,000 open food service jobs in the US. The average tenure of a food service worker is seven weeks. Uh, the average turnover in the quick serve industry is about 150%. So what this means is if you're running a, a quick serve restaurant, like a pizza restaurant, uh, you're spending most of your time hiring and training people and then actively. So you've got a tremendous uh, shun and burden on your business. Um, for every every time you hire uh, three people in one year to do the job, you're you're wasting money. Um, and we met a franchisee early on who actually went out of business because he could not hire enough workers to do the job. So that was pre-pandemic. Then when the pandemic hit, then working conditions in restaurants became uh, challenging. People didn't want the jobs. Now as we're coming out of the pandemic, what we're actually seeing is an even worse labor shortage than there was before the pandemic, where people are, are getting better jobs. There's, there's just, uh, there are help wanted signs in every restaurant um, and it's a huge problem. So we're seeing the market really turn to automation, um, looking for solutions. And the irony is that they want the solutions. There's not that many solutions available. So you mentioned a couple of, of other companies that were in the automation space before Picnic was. And uh, 
when I when I joined, I looked at a landscape of food technology, restaurant technology companies, and out of 200 companies listed, there were less than 10 that actually had any contact with food. Most of the restaurant technology companies are software dealing with payment systems or delivery coordination or POS. Um, almost nobody is touching the food because that's actually a hard problem to solve. And a lot of the early players in the food automation space were taking kind of a shortcut. They are repurposing industrial robotics, basically buying a robotic arm like you'd see in a car factory and reprogramming it to flip a burger or to make a cup of coffee. Um, and you end up with a, a machine that's really overkill for the task. Um, and it's not really great for the setting. It's not safe to work around. It's not cost effective. Um, it's not really the right tool for the job. Uh, if you develop purpose-built robotics, such as Picnic has, uh, that takes a lot longer than a lot more R&D um, to get that right. Um, and that's, that's what we believe will come online the next, in the coming years, is systems that are really built specifically to do a task or a series of tasks. And in a restaurant setting, because you're working with a tight uh, space, uh, it's gotta be something that's safe for people to work around. It's gotta actually pay for itself. So either with labor savings or with food waste savings or operational efficiencies, it has to sort of earn its place in, on the line. And uh, that's another difficult challenge for food robotics. So it's a, it's a hard space to be in, but it's one that everyone's clamoring for because they don't have the workers and the number one, if we just talk about pizza for a moment, the number one problem that we hear from our customers is not the labor shortage or even the cost of labor, it's actually consistency. And so if you're making pizza, think about this, if you're making a, if you're a branded pizza restaurant, you're selling a pizza and it's got a, you've named it on your menu, it's got this combination of ingredients. If you've got inexperienced workers who are making that pizza and they make it very inconsistently, they make it different every time, then why would anyone go and order that particular pizza because they don't actually know what it's going to taste like. Um, and so making the pizza consistently is a huge value to uh, pizza operators. And uh, if you think about the quality of pizza, some people think, well, automatic pizza, that sounds like it's frozen or sounds like it, it doesn't sound like it has the spirit of pizza or the magic of pizza. We hear all these phrases. Um, and the way we look at it, great pizza has these components. It has a great dough that's been prepared well, however you like to prepare your dough. Some people proof it for multiple days. It's got a great cook. It's what, however you cook your pizza. Is it a wood-fired oven? Is it a deck oven? Is it a conveyor oven? Um, those are two essential ingredients. And then you've got, what, what are you putting in the pizza? Fresh, high-quality toppings, great. And then a great recipe. Who designed the recipe? What's the right proportions? How much sauce? How much of each ingredient? Those are, those are the, if you have those elements right, you're gonna make a great pizza. The only thing we're controlling in, that, in those four elements is we're following the recipe. We're using the proportions that were designed when the recipe was written and we can make it the same every time. And that's the thing where humans struggle to do that. They especially struggle to do it when they're in a hurry and it's a rush hour and they're trying to make a bunch of pizzas in a hurry and they've only been on the job for two weeks. It's really hard to make the pizza fast and, not, and get the ingredients right and not spill a lot of ingredients on the floor. And that's where our system comes in. So we can make a great pizza, I would argue a better pizza than a human can make it because we're not actually changing any of the key elements of what makes a great pizza. All right, and I'll definitely wanna hold on to and revisit that part in terms of doing it better than humans in terms of consistency and everything. But 
I guess I'll quickly jump in from the creative investment side and uh, mention a little bit in terms of what we see. We definitely do see a lot of uh, companies within the food services space. Uh, we end up seeing a lot of those robotics ar arms. Uh, you know, we love uh, PhDs that, you know, found companies and everything. That's a lot of our portfolio, actually. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of first-time founders in our portfolio, et cetera. But, yeah, we do tend to see a lot of the every random person decides that they're the first person who's thought of uh, using a six-axis robot, uh, <laughs> robotic arm to do <laughs> stuff in terms of food services robotics. So, uh, yeah, I definitely will echo that. And I'll also say uh, one of the big challenges that I think most people don't appreciate as much within this space is reliability and consistency not not even not even in terms of the piece that you were mentioning for pizza consistency in this particular case it's just literally the thing doesn't go down a mm -hmm. industrial oven does not typically suddenly break down and basically bring the entire food services operation to a screeching halt uh, that's a important factor <laughs> for many food services operators that this newfangled tool that they brought in doesn't suddenly just break down and basically leave their entire operation stranded with nothing happening, uh, especially with the margins that a lot of these players are operating with. So that makes a lot of sense. But coming back again to that consistency thing, that do it better than humans thing, you know, we've had a presidential candidate uh, before and now I guess a candidate for the mayorship of New York who's mm -hmm. talked a lot about the idea that robots are taking away jobs the biggest threat to humanity is that robots you know will take away all our jobs and will basically become like the a dystopian version of the people in Wally -E or something I don't know maybe Terminator or something instead of Wally -E. Um, I guess just to get your perspective in terms of that. So are these robots taking away jobs? Are we basically going to put food services workers completely out of work? Uh, what's, what's your take on this? I would say, you know, short answer is no, we're not going to do that. And, um, even if we wanted to do that, we'd, we'd have a, a tall task. I mean, the, the size of the pizza industry is vast. There's 76,000 pizza restaurants just in the U S um, there's, probably a quarter of a million uh, sites worldwide that our system could potentially go into. Um, and the fact is those, all those sites are looking for workers. We had a local news station do an interview of us when we did our first financing. Um, and we told them the story that we're not taking jobs, we're taking job openings. And they, they had never heard of that. And they actually filmed on their way back to the studio they filmed like five different restaurants on their way back to the studio, all of which had help wanted signs in the window. This was a year before the pandemic. Um, so that's the first thing. Again, just chronic job shortage. Um, the other part of this is that a typical, these small restaurants, we're not replacing all the jobs. We're making the, the production more efficient. And what that means usually is it's the rush hour in a pizza restaurant that's hard. So making pizza uh, well in a rush hour you, you, pizza is good when it's hot and fresh. And if you want a freshly made hot pizza at a rush hour, then you're gonna have to wait for all the pizzas that got ordered five minutes before you to get made, plus yours, plus the cook time. You may be waiting 20 or 30 minutes for your pizza and rush hour, you don't have time for that. A lot of restaurants combat that, they make the pizza ahead of time. Um, if you go to a football stadium, uh, I know 
the football stadium in Seattle, they told us that they make their pizzas on Thursdays. Um, it takes them two full days of an eight person crew to make 5,000 pizzas before a Sunday football game. And so those pizzas are warmed up on Sunday and I'm sure it's fine, it's, it's a stadium, but it's not really the best pizza. So what happens in a restaurant that's trying to serve the best pizza, they staff up and they may have five, eight, even one, in one case, major franchisee told us they have 13 people working on a Friday night trying to keep up with the rush hour. Well, the rush hour only lasts a couple of hours and you hire 13 people to staff your restaurant through the rush hour. And those shifts are really short. Um, it's really expensive. It's really inefficient. Um, there's not even enough room for 13 people in the restaurant. So what our system allows you to do is you've got your core staff and the rush hour comes and the system can handle the, the rush and you don't need to have this bubble of short-term workers um, working a short shift you can just work right through that. You can deliver hot, fresh uh, pizza straight through very productively. Um, you still have your core staff. You just don't have people working that, that rush hour on uh, a really bad shift. So um, our system is, is a, it's called a cobot. It's, it's made to be a coworker with people. It's safe to work around. The people interact with it very closely. It's not, uh, it's not gonna swing around and hit you. Um, and it's not designed to work completely without people, it's just a productivity tool. And you look around any kitchen and the other productivity tools that are already there, mixers, ovens, food processors. <clears throat> this is just another appliance. <clears throat> it's a little bit more sophisticated than the appliances that were around 20 years ago, but that's really all it is. And I don't think anyone was complaining about, uh, about those appliances when they came online saying they were gonna take away work. Um, we wanna make food preparation easy and that's why our system exists. Right. And I, I love that saying in terms of uh, taking job openings instead of uh, taking jobs. Uh, I think that's that's a great way of putting it and really intuitive. Because, uh, yeah, the normal way that we describe it here, which is much less intuitive, much wonkier, whatever, is, uh, is the idea that, you know, the, the causation is reversed. So if the idea is if you're expecting that what's happening is robots are throwing people out of work, what you would expect is you'd see automation come along first and mm -hmm. then people start to lose jobs. What you actually see is uh, <laughs> job openings, shortage of labor, and then suddenly now automation shows up almost as a last resort from business owners. Because like you were saying, a lot of these things are clunky, um, you know, they're repurposed, they're not really meant for what they're trying to do. They eventually go down, they have all sorts of issues. And then, yeah, I mean, food services is still a relatively conservative industry as far as things go. Uh, just again, margins are tight. Uh, there's a lot of innovation in terms of the franchises, especially. But if you're talking about uh, your sort of on the ground operations folks, most of them aren't putting in random things all the time. Uh, okay. So anyway, it, it's sort of an interesting uh, thing here, especially when we compare it to construction, which is even more conservative, mm -hmm. but also has that same labor shortage force uh, that we see basically driving adoption in terms of it. So uh, yeah, I, again, just sort of love the saying in terms of job openings. So out of curiosity here, are there, just, just in terms of this phenomena that you see, is there specific characteristics of regions or specific characteristics of types of 
uh, types of food services, uh, something in common that you see for the places that require things like Picnic and these food services automation technologies the most? Um, I would I would say um, the most needy customers, the most receptive customers we see now, and this is this is a very nascent stage of what's going to be a huge industry. Um, it's a, it's the restaurants. So when we talk about what happened in the pandemic, um, food service has been really very significantly disrupted permanently. Um, what's happened is uh, the the traditional idea that a kitchen is attached to a dining room. Um, and when you want commercially prepared food, you go in, you go to a restaurant, you sit down and you eat it there. That idea has, was already being eroded by, by personal consumer trends. It's now been completely blown up. Um, so you have the rise of ghost kitchens, commissary kitchens, you see groceries, convenience stores, um, selling food, delivering food, um, the entire process of how commercial food is prepared and fulfilled to an order is is it's being disintegrated into a bunch of pieces and how it will reform in the future is is yet to be seen um, one thing that you see is you see people who used to have a, a dine-in restaurant operation and they started taking digital orders for delivery and then they were 100 percent digital orders and one of the characteristics of digital orders is they can come in at massively higher volume than your than your uh, traditional orders. So if your traditional system was someone comes in and queues up to place an order at a counter, or they they sit at a table and they place an order, there's only so many people who can queue up at the counter. There's only so many people who can sit down and place an order. And if the place is packed, people won't stop there. They'll drive to the next place down the road. Digital orders, you can't see how many people are in line. So you can have 20 or 50 or 100 orders in one second. And so producing the food consistently, quickly, and in high quality becomes a new challenge. It's a much bigger challenge than it used to be. And so the digital operations are really needing automation. And so what we see is the, the, the most receptive place to put automation today is in operations that have commissary kitchens. And that could be a commissary serving a, a bunch of convenience stores it could be a ghost kitchen it could be a restaurant that's converted its its carry out orders to an off-site location or some restaurants have converted their dining rooms into production facilities we've we saw we've seen some of that uh, we've also seen restaurants who are now selling their product through retailers instead of selling just in a restaurant now they're packaging and selling to grocery stores because the grocery stores are looking for a higher quality output and then we're seeing grocery stores who see how many uh, commercially prepared pizzas they're selling. And they're saying, wait a minute, we want some of that action. So they wanna ramp up their private label production of pizza because they're selling 20,000 pizzas a month from the major frozen pizza brands. They're saying, well, if we made those pizzas instead, we could get a lot more margin. So everyone is, is looking for how do we produce against this really significant demand. And so th that's really where we see the, the highest demand. Um, in terms of regions, We've seen interest from all over the world. I would say we've really, we've seen outsized interest, surprisingly enough, from Europe. And when I talk to Europeans, it's really because of, of labor costs in Europe and just constraints that Europe is seeing the same trends in terms of delivery and carryout. 
but because of the regulatory environment, there's it's much higher labor costs there and much harder to hire and, and fire workers. So they've got their the economic benefit to them of converting to automation is significantly higher than it is in the US. But we've seen interest from the Middle East. I had no idea how many people ate pizza in the Middle East, quite a few actually. Um, uh, Asia, certainly. Uh, the US is, is very interested as well. Uh, also South America, but uh, Europe is the, is the market that stands out as the one that we get inquiries every day from, and we're not international yet, but uh, we will be soon. Yeah, and that's really interesting, especially in terms of thinking about how the landscape has changed post-COVID. So I guess just from your perspective, uh, because you're talking about uh, ghost kitchens, these different uh, aggregate operations, uh, obviously now we also have more cities, more urban areas with all this outdoor dining now, just reclaiming certain streets and everything. Uh, but just a, we also have a very devastated food services landscape in terms of restaurants and other small businesses in the space, just going out of business and everything. What do you see uh, post-pandemic, just in terms of, do you see these ghost kitchens becoming more of a thing? Are people going to do delivery all the time? Uh, do you, where, where do you see sort of the longer term trends and changes thanks to what's gone on? Yeah. So before the pandemic, delivery and carryout was growing at 300% the rate of dine-in. So it was already happening. People were already getting accustomed to, you know, Netflix and chill, you know, order some food in. And as food delivery options proliferate with DoorDash and, and Uber Eats, um, it became easier and easier to get whatever you want. And people, you know, consumers want convenience and personalization. And I think that's kind of a one-way street. I don't think they go, I don't see a time when they're going to go away from, I want some less convenience and less personalization in my future. Um, so I think that that desire was already there. What the pandemic has done is it's just taken that and accelerated it, you know, years in just a few months. And by doing that, it's also uh, really enabled a lot of economic activity because um, uh, my friend Chris Young, founder of Chef Steps, was on a podcast uh, several weeks ago, and he he used the analogy of a restaurant and the, the fundamental challenge of a restaurant being if you have a creative chef who's kind of artistic and has designed dishes that are delicious and 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 well plated, and has this artistic bent uh, to produce very high quality food, and then he's attached to a commercial kitchen which he described as a horribly inefficient factory. So you're trying to produce these dishes consistently and in quantity, but quality control is a problem, labor is a problem, consistency is a problem, and it's just always this struggle. You know, and it's the struggle of running a restaurant is this day, hour to hour, minute to minute quality control problem. And how do you fill the restaurant? How do you not overfill it? How do you get the deep meals out on time? Make sure they're cooked properly. Um, it's, it's a struggle. And that's why a lot of restaurants have had traditionally very low margins. So now you have all these displaced food workers who are now forming new, new enterprises and the new enterprises have the advantage that they don't have the disadvantage of the old system. And so they have the opportunity to reinvent, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to come I'm going to prepare commercially prepared food that's delicious and I'm going to serve it to my customers who love it, but it's, but now I'm going to be able to leverage technology. I'm not tied to a dining room. I can build a more efficient production facility. I can build, I can get away from that horribly inefficient factory. And <clears throat> we see these new operations being much more tech savvy. There, no one's going in 
I mean, you, you literally can't open a ghost kitchen operation without being tech savvy because you've got to have a digital ordering and, and management capability. <clears throat> you've got to handle the volume. Um, and these customers are much more receptive to and even looking for automation because that's part of what's going to help them meet their need. And they're going to be able to do it at a higher margin. And this goes back to the jobs thing. These new business enterprises that are forming in the wake of the devastation of the food service industry are going to be more profitable. They're going to be prolific because people still want commercially prepared food and they're going to hire a lot of people. There's going to be lots of jobs created, but they're going to be created in businesses that are more profitable, can afford to pay a higher wage and probably can offer better working conditions, especially if they're using automation and people aren't placing pepperoni slices on a pizza one at a time to make it to make a pizza. No, that's great. Uh, that's a much more hopeful uh, direction. And, and I think in reality, more realistic uh, view as to where food services are going to go. Um, maybe traditional retail, uh, just in terms of if we're talking about industries that are going down the drain, uh, maybe traditional retail, uh, brick and mortar retail, uh, maybe irrecoverable to the same levels it was before, but just in terms of need of food, uh, having it as a social activity and everything, uh, that's probably still going to be there, uh, even after sure. the pandemic and a lot of these interesting, innovative, uh, models hopefully will come into play. And yeah, uh, lo love the enthusiasm, uh, love the idea that, you know, you'll be able to have more efficient businesses that will be able to pay higher wages too. Again, sort of going back to that discussion that we had of robots taking away jobs. I, yeah, it's unintuitive to most people, but, you know, both economic theory and economic history in terms of through the Industrial Revolution and everything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, is pretty much Fewer workers are needed for a particular area, but because of that, and because productivity has gone up, so fewer worker per output, so greater productivity, usually wages go up, but also usually the industry grows too, just because your demand goes up as it becomes more affordable to more and more people. So if you can actually create very high quality meals, have pretty high margins, and have a high level, all this high level of quality with less cost, you might actually expand the market just in terms of activities and things that people can do. So anyway, I lo love the hope in terms of it and think it actually is quite realistic. So all good stuff there. So uh, just one qu a question just in terms of the uh, food services myths, misconceptions and everything, because we've talked a little bit about, you know, what people think about food services, the interactions that they have and sort of the surface level that I think most people have with food services. Are there any big misconceptions about either the food services industry, food services automation or anything uh, that you'd want to address other than sort of the jobs issue that we've talked about? Um, I think people perceive food service to be, I mean, you've said it yourself, pretty conservative. Um, I know, again, my prior gig was in precision agriculture. You know, that's a it, starting to sell technology to farmers. That's a pretty conservative uh industry. So um, I would say they're, in both cases, uh, they're conservative, but they're interested. You know, they've got serious problems that they want to solve. And so they're not at all uh, unreceptive to solutions. They, where they struggle is how to, how do I use this new thing? How do I, how do I get access to something that's actually going to help me? 
And uh, sometimes I, I talk about our, our you know, food automation as a spaceship in a cornfield in the, in the sense that I've never seen one before. My neighbors don't have one. I don't know what it should cost. I don't know how it works. I don't know how to think about it. Um, and so part of our challenge as bringing new technology to an industry is we have to help them understand how to use it, how to use it to maximum benefit, how to integrate it in their operation to get the most value. Um, and one thing that's true about you know, process improvement, I've done some of this work in my past. Um, first rule of thumb is don't automate a bad process. Um, and second is you can't just drop a piece of automation in the middle of a process and expect the whole process to just get better. It doesn't work that way. So you really have to think about the overall process and how will this be integrated and what are the other technologies that are complementary that may also need to be deployed. So for our system, our system can accept orders uh, digitally over the internet and but you can also go in and punch it in manually with your finger, you know, with your that digit. Um, so uh, if if you you choose the finger digital method, um, you're not you're missing an opportunity. Where if the orders instead come in uh, over the air, so to speak, that's that's an opportunity for error and an opportunity for for work that isn't actually adding value to be eliminated. Uh, from the process and the whole process gets better if you just streamline that and the orders just come directly in. And then that enables a new opportunity which is now you've got a backlog of digital orders. You can dynamically reorder that queue depending on, oh, this del delivery driver is gonna be 20 minutes late, let's delay that order. Oh, this customer just walked in, let's not make them wait, let's advance him to the front of the line. And those are things that humans actually struggle with that cognitive load of how do I how do I stop what I'm doing and, and start doing something else where the, system, the machine, the technology can handle that very easily. So I think what it surprised me, it was counterintuitive to me, just how receptive the industry is to technology and to automation. Um, but I can see the frustration, how many people really want it and they want it today and they wish they had it now and they're having to wait for it to actually get out there and, and to be matured and to be productively deployed. Um, and so I, I, there's really a pull in the industry for more of this. And I think it, it's going to pull more players into the industry, but it's going to definitely create a huge growth as the systems become uh, widely available. No, I think that's a great point. And that's uh, it's a great clarification, too, uh, just because, yeah, I, I think in terms of me saying that it's conservative and I, I think you're right to call out that, you know, they are definitely open to it. If they weren't, we wouldn't have much of a venture firm uh, since we focus on all these different areas. So if they never want to adopt any technologies, that would be a problem for us. But yeah, it's uh, I think you're right here. It's The stakes, I think, are higher for them than it is for some random, again, I mean, insulting certain people, I'm sure, but a random SaaS tool <laughs> that you uh -huh. stick into your process or whatever. It's like, you know, a new CRM, a new one of these things. It's like, it is important to your process. It's going to be a pain in the ass if, you know, the thing fails or the thing loses all your data or does something like that. But those sorts of catastrophic failures at this point are fairly rare. And also the biggest thing that you might run into is, you know, typically just, okay, the process is less efficient. We're going to have to change over to a new SaaS thing for this, or we'll rip it out or whatever. But the consequences for agriculture or food services is, well, you lost the season because your thing that you relied on, it didn't work, 
or you lost however many nights or however many tables because the thing just jammed up your process so you can serve customers and now they're angry they left or whatever it is so the stakes are a lot higher and the economic costs are a lot higher so a lot of these industries i think it makes a lot more sense why the hurdle is also higher which i think goes back to your point of you can't just dump the thing into the middle of the process you can't just have a few again phds show up throw a robot into the middle and then decide mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's got to be more efficient now <laughs> so. exactly exactly and it is it is it is much more transformational than just buying a piece of software and that's what we expect that as as it gets deployed and people see the value we it's hard to conceive of people saying no i want to go back to the old way of, of doing things um because um it's just gonna it's it's just like people aren't going back to hand mixing anything right they're not going back to hand chopping vegetables and getting rid of their food processor um so we think this is this is going to be a permanent change as it gets established in in the routine and and as it expands and gets integrated with other technologies where it's just a routine part of the kitchen um this is going to be uh, a real transformation for the industry and i think a very beneficial one great um let's see and especially given that you've just finished up your uh, series a and really excited for the future and everything i'm curious since you've been on the trail recently here what does the investment landscape look like for food services automation what's the interest level uh are there different uh concerns especially after zoom zoomy i've heard it i've heard zoom. it described yeah in different ways but yeah zoom uh are, are, are there still fears in terms of it? Uh, it's, is it the Theranos of your industry? Are there people who are still worried about different things? Or, or is there a lot of excitement now with the pandemic? Just curious uh, from an in-the-trenches perspective what you've been seeing. Absolutely. Um, well, I think the, the paradox of, of where we are today, like right now, like I say, just finished this fundraising, um, is there's a handful of companies out there that are have been true believers in food automation, food tech, restaurant tech. And the that's the good news. The bad news is a lot of those true believers uh, got burned. They, they bought into early movers, um, which I won't name, but they're, you know, in, in the graveyard of, of startup history and they're gun shy. So they, they're interested in it, but they want to see more proof points. If anything, they actually have a higher risk threshold than, than some other uh, investors. So a lot of those guys were choosing to sit out just because they they felt, you know, once burned, twice shy. Um, I see a new set of, of investors, though, coming in who really see the size of the opportunity and they see the transformations happening in the industry. And what we where we actually saw the most success was first with our current investors, um, who have been continually supportive and enthusiastic, but the new the new money which is coming in um, is largely people who have very close ties to the industry. I think people who see just how transformational the future looks in the industry, and they know where what's coming, and they see the size of the opportunity, and I think they probably see it more clearly than the general market. And we we've, we've seen some just very high enthusiasm from industry connected uh, strategic investors as well as institutional investors with strong strategic connections. Um, and that's really 
what what's carried our round to to where we are. Um, we of course have the the traditional split between those who are or are not allergic to hardware. Um, that that's going to persist till the end of time, I think. So you've got to be willing to invest in hardware in the first place, um, and then. But when you see the opportunity, I would I would challenge anybody to find a, a hardware opportunity that has a brighter future than than food tech. Right. Yeah. And the hardware thing is always funny since uh, cre- a creative uh, who, you know, we've believed in terms of uh, where Picnic is, go- is going for a long time now, too, well, for the period that we've been invested in and we've sort of taken off since then. So glad in terms of that long term time scope uh, for that part. Uh, we I think one interesting thing is it's always a weird thing talking to other VCs where they get worried about hardware and uh, they're invested in different software companies or network driven companies that will take 10x more money and might or might not actually ever get to an exit. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, if you get to an exit in terms of it's going to be big, the likelihood is it might not. If it does, you're going to be pretty heavily diluted. And it's going to take forever because there's no natural endpoint versus a hardware product where, you know, there's, you sink in the money, it has real impacts and everything and customers will buy it or whatnot. You don't need a infinitely large sales force to start calling up every single person and trying to get them to buy your SaaS product. And also you won't have an infinite amount of time where it's like, well, we're improving our customer churn metrics for the next five years. (laughs) versus uh, looking at a potential acquisition or something. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, software is appealing because of, of the ease of changing it, but the ease of changing it means that it's always changing, which costs money. So um, hardware has its own discipline about you've got you've to make it into a configuration that works, and then you've got to build it in a configuration that you can produce at volume. And um, I, I'm very comfortable in hardware. I've been working in hardware for a very long time. Um, and I understand why people get nervous about it, but it's, I think it's, it's much more about getting a competent team to do the development and then having a, a worthwhile market opportunity to pursue. And you put those two things together and I think it makes a great investment. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been very happy on our side in terms of our investment in Picnic as well. So I will echo that on my side on the investor, from the investor seat. So just in terms of that, what's next for Picnic, uh, just in terms of coming up? Um, And also, I'll give you this chance to do any plugs as well for either partners, that types of partners that you're looking for, hires that you're looking to get, things like that. Yeah, thanks. Well, this this is a great uh, inflection point in our development to reach this this stage of a Series A. Uh, It gives us, we're we're just at the stage of entering the market and we're just we're out there selling with our first version today and we're recognizing through operating it, you know, where we want to make improvements and where we need to be. Um, we've, we've been fortunate to see uh, interest from significant customers across multiple segments. And because we're the first one in the market, we're getting the benefit of, of hearing, you know, what, what do they think it needs to do? What, what kind of requirements do they want to pass along? And we, we are actively working on improved uh, next versions. And our business model is robotics as a service. I haven't talked too much about that. Um, we did that because we wanted to make it easy to buy. Most of our operators don't have a lot of capital to spend, especially on a, what would be considered exotic technology. So you can get the system with 
no money up front and you just pay on a term contract. And for that term contract, you get upgrades along the way within the product family. And so we can continue to improve the system. We don't freeze anybody waiting for next year's model, but the customer, current customers can get the benefit of improved capability as we release that capability. And so we're working on those improved capabilities and we're working toward uh, just, you know, better, better performance, uh, better form factor, um, different use cases, understanding what customers are looking for. Some customers want more end-to-end -end automation. Other customers want um, more space efficient uh, functionality. And um, so we're, we're working on that. We're gonna be significantly expanding the team. Um, up to now, our team has been pretty small. We, we like to joke that we have, we've had, um, you know, one more subsystem to design than we had engineers on the team. So everyone was kind of flying, swimming in their own lanes. And now we get to have teams working on subsystems, which will be uh, a big uh, productivity enhancement. And um, in the future, we're going to be expanding our, our sales and marketing. We're looking for uh, new marketing leadership. Um, we're also looking for new product management leadership, new product managers. Um, sometime over the next year, we're going to start recruiting for a CTO. Uh, because there's a lot of um, more advanced technologies that we are have in a limited extent in the current version, they will have much more, in a higher extent in future versions, and that will uh, again enable more of a software-driven uh, high-precision machine that uh, we believe is is exactly what's going to take us to the next level. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone out there has any of those skills or areas or abilities. Uh, Definitely uh, reach out to Picnic. Uh, I will say from the investor perspective, having seen, I guess it's not an exaggeration to actually say hundreds at this point, and uh, Picnic basically being the only bet within the direct food automation space. We have another investment also in dishwashing and some areas that are around the general area, but in terms of direct food preparation, the only one that we've seen at this point that we think is practical and is able to actually go out to market in a significant way, uh, yeah, would definitely encourage you to apply. So um, as we sort of wrap up here, I uh, want to also give you a chance to have any words of wisdom for startups founders out there thinking about whether it's this space or some other space, um, just some lessons that you've learned or thoughts that you have, uh, just rec recommendations for people either struggling out there right now, thinking about jumping into the startup realm, anything like that. Sure, sure. Um, so some of this is, is uh, probably, you know, conventional wisdom, uh, perhaps the point of cliche, but it, I, I think it's really true. One is recognize that the investors you talk to are actually multi-year business partners. Um, so choose wisely, not only with who's got a check, but who, who do you want to work with? Who do you want sitting in your boardroom? Who's going to be uh, supportive of you? And uh, high, high praise for Creative Ventures as a, as a great partner. Um, they've been uh, superb to work with uh, since, they, since they joined our, our, our board. Um, next thing I would say is recognize startups often get uh, conflated with something happening fast or overnight success or quick riches. Um, in my experience, there's nothing fast about startups except the pace. Um, it's a it's a long play. It changes fast. You've got to move fast, but the payoff is a long-term payoff. 
and you reach the long-term payoff by learning as much as you can along the way. Sometimes you have to pivot and take a sharp turn, but settle in for the long haul, have a, have a big vision and recognize that, that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, you may have to run fast during that marathon, but it's going to take a long time to really uh, get the maximum success. Yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, yeah, from my own experience from in the startup realm and also just seeing the different startups and which ones succeed or fail, that's absolutely true. Um, a lot of the startups that do the best at the end are not the ones that are ones that do struggle in the middle. They aren't high flying all the time, constantly. The ones that do tend to be actually tend to also be the ones that burn out very quickly because <laughs> none of the things that they were prom they promised were true. So no, that that's great. Thanks so much, Clayton. Uh, really glad to have you here. Um, and congratulations again on the round. And uh, really excited to see what's coming next for Picnic. Thanks so much, James. It's been a, a fun fun conversation. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. All right. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you go for this sort of thing. Visit us online at creativeventures.vc. Look out there for our other content. Subscribe to our newsletter. And if you are a startup, we have a form there for cold outreach if you're looking for funding, where we do review every single submission. Otherwise, uh, we're on Twitter, so tweet at us at creative underscore VC or tweet me. James at a James Wang, no spaces. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening.